Our sermon text this evening is Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, continuing to verse 25. Romans seven thirteen through 25. Let us again hear the word of God. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law. That evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word is truth, and we seek your help in discovering and discerning that truth. Grant us, Lord, hearts that believe. Give us, O Lord, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, understanding and faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This passage which I have just read has perplexed some Christians who think that perhaps this cannot refer to a Christian man. Now to be sure there are some troubling statements in this passage that make it sound awfully Dreary, awfully discouraging to the Christian, but really that is not the sense of this passage at all. So before we proceed, I want to take just a moment or two to show you that this passage is, in fact, about a Christian. Now initially, not just any Christian, but the Apostle Paul himself. And the reason why this is important is that as we proceed through this passage, I want you to understand that God is talking to you Christian now as a Christian, even as Paul described himself as a Christian. So first of all, this must be the Apostle Paul describing himself. Number one, you notice the first person pronouns throughout. The first person pronoun, I, 
is used by the apostle in these verses 24 times. If we include me, my, and myself, it's a total of 37 times that the apostle refers to himself in just 12 verses. Simply put, my question is this. If Paul did not want us to think he was speaking of himself, then why did he write as if he were speaking of himself? Related to this is, I think you probably noticed, the change in the verb tenses. Back in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 7, verse 13, we are seeing the past tense. And it shifts in chapter 7, verse 14, to a present tense. This signals a change in time of the things that are being described. If it does not, then language appears to have lost all meaning. Beginning with I am in verse 14, all of the verbs until the end of this chapter are in the present tense. This is especially convincing when the first person pronoun, I, is combined with the present tense verb. I am. I do not understand. I do. I do not do. I agree. I know. I will. Etc. Again, if Paul were not speaking of himself as a Christian, then we must ask why did he write as if he were speaking of himself as a Christian? Now, grammatically, I think the case is indisputable. There have been attempts to say Paul is making use of some literary convention or some technique. However, those types of things simply do not occur in Paul's writings. The simplest and most straightforward way to understand it is that when Paul says, I am, he means to say that at that time he was. But I would also submit to you that there are things in this passage that cannot accurately be applied to an unbeliever. Now, to be sure, there are several things in this passage that can be said of both believers and unbelievers, but there are some things, particularly with the strength and degree to which the apostle attributes them to himself, could not be accurately said of an unregenerate, unbelieving person. For example, Paul says that, says that he wills to do good and does not will to do evil. In verses 15 and in verses 21. He calls the law good in verse 16, but listen to this in verse 22. He delights in the law of God. Now the unbeliever can have an acquaintance with the law of God. The unbeliever can even outwardly show some obedience to the law of God. The unbeliever, remember, has the law of God written in his, on his conscience. But the unbeliever cannot, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, delight in the law of God. Only those who have the Holy Spirit can actually joyfully pursue obedience to God. In verse 24, the apostle, in the present tense, thanks God for deliverance in Jesus Christ. Certainly that cannot be an unbeliever. But then some would say, well, maybe in that instance, he's speaking for himself, but in the rest of the instance, he isn't. And you see how that becomes convoluted. Where do we start and where do we stop? I say we start and stop where he uses the pronouns referring to himself and the verb tenses speaking in the present tense. 
And then finally in verse 25, this cannot be an unbeliever because he serves the law of God in his mind. We will see later on that the mind here refers simply to the renewed part of his nature, the new man. The part of his self that is being influenced and controlled by God the Holy Spirit. So the unbeliever does not do that. I would add another reason that this refers to a Christian. And that is this. This fits what Paul says of Christians in his other writings. I'll give you just one example. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17. The flesh lusts against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. That sounds very much like what we just read here in chapter 7. Finally, one more reason, and I will call this Christian experience. John Owen said that sometimes experience is the best expositor. And what he meant by that is he, could, he was perplexed that men struggled over this passage. And he was saying that the Christian, the regenerate man, should relate to this. The struggle which the apostle is describing should be very familiar to any Christian who has taken seriously their sin. I confess that when I read this struggle in Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25, I find that I myself relate to it. And it is my hope that you will relate to it. Because Paul, in describing his experience, describes the experience of every Christian this side of glory. Or as one man has put it, if this is not about a Christian, then I am not a Christian. So then in this passage, which describes the Christian's conflict with sin, we're going to look at three points. Number one. In verse 13, the design of the law. Number two, in verses 14 through 21, the discovery of sin. Make that through verse 23. 14 through 23, I am sorry. And then number three, the deliverance from sin in verses 24 and 25. We begin then with the design of the law. And by design, I mean intention or purpose. What is the law's design as it pertains to the Christian? We saw previously that the law, even in the unregenerate, is used to discover or reveal sin. Well, even in the regenerate, the law continues to have that office or that design, that purpose from God. The apostle begins here with his familiar question and vehement denial format, right? Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. Now, we have to admit that whether an unbeliever or a believer, an honest encounter with the law of God can be painful and can be difficult. And we might ask then, is, is what is good, is that what's becoming death to me? But just as the law is not sin, which we saw in chapter 7, verse 7, we also see that the law is not the cause of death. Sin is the cause of death, Paul says. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. The law of God, far from being death, is actually designed to discover sin. By discover, I mean show it, 
to find it and show it for what it is. Not just the presence of sin, mind you, but really the severity of sin. How deep down into the man sin goes. Paul says, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Now you understand that sin is already exceedingly sinful. But what he is saying is that sin might become in our apprehension of it. In our recognition of it, exceedingly sinful. You know, down in Florida, they say that uh, any body of water deeper than your shoe probably has alligators in it. Now, the thing about alligators is that they hide. They can sit under the surface of the water or in the weeds or vegetation, and you won't see them. But, you know, if you go to a body of water at night in Florida and shine lights on the surface of the water, you see little little sets of eyes reflecting back at you. You see, when you shine the light on them, you see those alligators, and it's terrifying to know that what you had not seen before is filled with these alligators. Well, sin is like that. It's hiding, lurking under the surface, waiting to victimize, right? Waiting to ambush, waiting to strike. But the law of God is like that light. God shines his light on our hearts in order to discover or reveal sin, to show us where those man-eaters, as it were, are lurking. So that is the design of the law here in verse 13. And this leads us to verse 14 in our second point, the discovery of sin. So the law is intended to discover sin. So the apostle, even as a Christian now, coming into contact with the law of God, begins to discover some things about himself. What then does the Christian discover when that light of God's law is shown upon his heart? And I thought of many different ways of going through these verses, but really what I want to say to you is this. There are two opposite powers or influences being described in these verses. One of them is sin, and the other is the regenerate or new man. And so what we're going to do is just look at one of them first and then the other. So first we look at sin or the corrupt nature. Paul, as a Christian, recognizes that he is carnal, having been sold under sin in verse 14. He says that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now in saying that the law is spiritual, he means among other things, but at the most basic level... He means that it corresponds to the character of God, the Holy Spirit, and to the work which God, the Holy Spirit, is doing in his people. We saw back in chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. God, the Holy Spirit, is holy, righteous, and good. The works which he does are holy, righteous, and good. Paul knows that about the law, but he reckons himself as carnal. Now this word carnal here refers to man in his fallen condition. Human nature apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. This is similar to what we read in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3. The Lord says before the flood, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Now, God is not about to destroy mankind from the face of the earth merely because they have skin and bones. 
but rather because of their sin, because of their corrupted nature, because of their having fallen in Adam and being spiritually dead. Note briefly here in verse 14, um, it's translated in our New King James as sold, sold to sin. And we might say, well, wait a minute, you just told us earlier on that we have been freed from sin. So why are you saying sold to sin? But what I want you to know is this is a perfect passive participle. We could translate it, having been sold. I am carnal, having been sold. Having been sold actually explains why it is that he is carnal. He, in Adam's fall, sinned along with we all. And when that happened, he received corruption of his nature. So having been sold, and he is now caring about the remnants of that bondage. It is something of a a Stockholm syndrome for Christians, right? We may be freed from sin, legally speaking, but we still carry about in ourselves the remnants of it, the influence of it, and sometimes we think we still love it and owe it something. So the corruption of what he speaks is the result of our transgression in Adam. Now here is something else he discovers. He does not practice what he wills to do. You see, he has, he has a design, he has a will to do something, but that's not what he accomplishes. You see that in verse 15. He also discovers in both verse 17 and in verse 20 that sin dwells in him. Sin dwells inside of you as if you were a house. Right? That's the picture here. Sin is living in you. Now notice this. He does not say in this place that he lives in sin. Right? He says sin lives in him. There's an important difference in this case. You have to understand that sin is like a parasite. Sucking the life out of you. Stealing your nutrients. Taking from you good things. We will talk about this more later, Lord willing, but understand that at one time you lived in a house in which sin was the master and you were the servant. Now you no longer live in sin's house. Sin is now living in your house. Do you see? But he's still there causing problems. But now he's kind of like um, a grown son who is jobless and lives in your basement and smokes pot and plays video games all day. Paul also discovers there is nothing good in his flesh. Now, he doesn't say there's nothing good in him whatsoever. He has the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has the word of God in him. He has the Holy Spirit. Those things are good. But he says, notice he qualifies it, verse 18. That is, in my flesh. Flesh is another way to speak of Humanity, human nature, apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, he says that he is unable to perform good. How to perform what is good, I do not find. Now, he does not mean that he never, ever does anything good at all. He means that whenever he sets out to do something good, sin is right there with him, frustrating him 
frustrating his efforts, contaminating the results. We'll see if this analogy is at all helpful to you. I always say that each sermon I preach is three sermons. Okay? There's a sermon Monday morning that I want to preach. And then there's the sermon Sunday evening that I preach. And then there's the sermon Sunday evening that I wish I had preached. Do you see the good that I want to do, I do not do. But that which I hate, that's what I do. But do you see how because of weakness, because of sin, because of the limitations imposed upon us, we never really can accomplish the good that we want to do. And as a Christian, the good that we want is the good which God prescribes. So sin is always there, staining, frustrating his efforts, contaminating the results of everything that he does. Another thing that he discovers is that he does evil, which he wills not to do. Verse 19, the evil I will not, that I practice. So not only is he having trouble doing the thing that he wills to do, he also finds himself doing that which he does not will to do. Sin oftentimes surprises, sneaks up, gets control of you before you even saw it coming. One more thing in verse 21 that he finds is that evil is present with him. The evil that he is discussing is one that is with him. It's not principally something outside of him, but something coming from him. So that is a sinful part is discovered by the law. The law, when, when the Christian looks into the law, he finds that he himself fails to measure up and that sin is deep down a part of us, dwelling in us. But what else did he discover? There are some other things I want you to look at. First of all, in verse 15, it says he does not understand what he does. The word understand is the word ordinarily translated no. Like as in, I don't know what I do. And now when the apostle says he doesn't know what he does, he doesn't literally mean he has no awareness of it. But he's using it in the way the King James Version translates it. I allow not. The same word is used by Christ in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, when he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. What he is saying there is, I don't approve of you, right? Christ knew of them, but he was refusing to be associated with them. And that is Paul with his sin. I allow not my sin, right? I, I want, I don't claim it. I don't associate it with it. Like Peter, I swear I don't know the man. That's Paul with his sin. I swear I don't know this sin. But Christians are often surprised and overtaken by sin without understanding or approving it. By the way, let me just make a, a remark here. Sometimes, and particularly in the Roman church, it is taught that sin is not sin until the will approves of it. But do you see, all the way back earlier in chapter 7 and all the way through here, sin is sin before the will even gets involved. Right? Sin is sin that dwells in us. And God opposes that sin. And that is, the kind, that is sin that must be repented of. Now, please don't misunderstand. 
We would not say that it is equally guilty to have sin before your will and then to have sin that you willingly do, right? It's obviously worse once you willingly partake. Nevertheless, you have to understand the condition of mankind fallen in Adam is that we are already guilty and filled with sin before we even make a decision or exercise our wills. Now he wills in verse 15, 18, and 21 to do good. He does have in him the will to do good. What I will to do, that I do not practice. Right? What does he practice? What he doesn't will to do. But he does have a will to do good and he's not practicing that. More than that, in verse 15, he finds that he hates Sin. What I hate, that I do. Do you see this hatred he has for sin? This is a Christian attitude towards sin. In verse 16, he finds that he agrees that the law is good. By willing not to do sin, he proves to himself that he agrees with the law's goodness, right? He, he votes in favor of the law. He confirms its goodness. Another thing that he discovers in himself is the evil which he does is actually contrary, I will say, to his true self. And it is against his own will. Listen to this in verse 17. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And again in verse 20. If I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it. Now, we might ask, well, Paul, who else is doing it? But you understand his point here is he's saying his better self, his true self, Paul, the redeemed man. Paul, if he could do according to his will, would say that that's not him. He would disown that sin. If he could cut it off from himself by some earthly means, he would, right? In verse 19, we see that he wills not to do evil, similar to willing to do good, but he also wills not to do evil. Finally, in verse 22, he delights in the law of God in the inward man. Take the inward man as the contrast to the flesh. Nothing good is in my flesh. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. The inward man refers to the regenerated part of the Christian. The part of the Christian that has come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Paul can honestly say, like we read in Psalm 40, I delight in the law of God. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. So what then has the apostle discovered? He has discovered that as a Christian, he has two competing influences within himself. In Galatians, he calls them the flesh and the spirit. We will call them for now the remaining corruption of sin and the renewed part of himself. And these two things, these two influences inside of him are engaged in a reconcilable war. They fight against one another. 
The spirit lusting against the flesh, the flesh lusting against the spirit. Verse 23 explains this. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Take members to refer to that sinful portion, that place where sin resides, the remaining corruption, the flesh, the old man. So sin which dwells in the old man is warring against the law of his mind. His mind, again, is that renewed part, the born again. And they're warring. And sin is seeking to bring him into captivity to the law of sin, which is in his members. Jacob and Esau struggled together in the same womb. The Israelites and the Canaanites warred in the same land. The house of David and the house of Saul had conflict in the same kingdom. Inside of you, Christian, are two warring factions vying for the same place and the same person. Every Christian is like two men, an old man and a new man, fighting to the death for the soul of the one man. The new man is controlled by God the Holy Spirit and obeys the law of God. The old man is controlled by sin and obeys the laws of Satan. So that is what Paul has discovered. He has discovered that as a Christian, God has marvelously regenerated him and given him a renewed nature. He is a new creation. He has literally been freed from sin. And yet there remains clinging to him vestiges, remnants, very powerful reminders of the old man. So we've seen the design of the law, which is to discover sin. And we've seen the discovery which the law makes when God shines its light upon our hearts. And what we find is that we are simil justus et peccator. At the same time justified and sinful. But that can't be the conclusion of the matter for us, can it? The Spirit of God dwelling in us zealously demands more. We cry out for more. And that leads us to the deliverance from sin in verses 24 and 25. Confronted with this painful reality of remaining and indwelling sin, the Christian cannot help but to cry out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? By the body of death, of course, Paul is referring to that remaining corruption, that old man, the flesh, the whole mass of sin which clings to us tighter than our own skin, that thing that weighs us down and entangles us. The same thing is also described as the body of sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. So in that place, it refers to the character of it, right? The body of sin, the body which is sinful. And in this case, it describes the results of it, the body of death. It brings death, but it's the same thing. In Virgil's Aeneid, 
Mezentius, the Etruscan king, is said to have tortured people by tying dead corpses to living bodies. And it is described this way, placing hand on hand and face against face, so killing by a lingering death in that wretched embrace, that ooze of disease and decomposition. Virgil is describing a scene of a man being lashed to a dead body, hand to hand, face to face, and the two eventually become one putrid mass together. The the disease and putrefaction of the dead body eventually overtaking the living body. And that's sort of something in Paul's cry here, isn't it? And notice that, by the way, uh, Virgil was only, you know, just a century prior to the coming of Christ. But Paul is describing something like that. Who will free me from this? How can I get out of this? But he doesn't despair. As soon as the cry for help, as soon as the question leaves his lip, he answers himself. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will free you from that body of death? God through Jesus Christ our Lord will free you from that body of death. Jesus Christ will free you from that sin. In the C.S. Lewis book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you may remember the spoiled brat named Eustace. And remember, he became enamored with the dragon's treasure and got too close for it when he reached out for it. Very similar theme to the garden, isn't it, and the man taking the fruit. But when he did that, he was transformed into a dragon. And the point of that, of course, is he always was a dragon on the inside. But eventually he started to look on the outside like what he was on the inside. Subsequently, Eustace meets with Aslan, who is the messianic figure in this story. And the lion commands Eustace to remove his dragon skin. So far, so good. And Eustace begins scratching at his skin until these dragon scales fall off. But then he finds underneath one layer of dragon scales is just another layer of dragon scales. And so he claws at those two, and he does this several times, each time revealing the deeper that he goes, the more and more he just is a dragon. Finally, Aslan tells Eustace to lay down, and Aslan himself removes the dragon skin. Eustace describes it as the worst pain he ever felt. Thought he was dying. But in the end, he was turned back into a boy. Afterwards, Eustace returned to his friends and he apologized for his beastly behavior. Lewis then, as the narrator concludes, it would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. And that's what I want you to know this evening, Christian. The cure has begun. 
and it will be brought to completion in the same way that it was begun, and that is, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does God deliver us from this body of death? Well, I want to mention two things that take place while we are yet here on the earth, and I, I think you can notice there's a, there's a forward or future-looking sense to this, right? Who will free me from this body of death? It's future. But yet, even now, there are some things that God does to deliver us. First of all, by pardoning our sins. God pardons, forgives, removes the guilt of our sins. Secondly, he mortifies our flesh. He, even he, puts to death our sins. You receive pardon for your sins when you forsake them. And you seek God's mercy in Christ when you cry out to him. Your sinful nature is mortified when you forsake it and seek God's mercy in Christ. You see, you repent of the inward, the inborn, the indwelling sin in the same way that you do of other sins. When you see it, you abominate it and you flee to God in Christ and seek his pardon for it. This section, I don't know if you noticed, but chapter 7, 13 through 25 begins and ends with a discussion of the law of God. And I want to conclude this evening by showing you how it is that God uses his law in your sanctification. The end of verse 25 says, So then, with the mind, I myself, it's interesting, just notice, I myself, remember earlier I said Paul was saying it's not his true self that does the sin. And here he adds a redundant pronoun. I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Here again, he's indicating his better self, his true self, his redeemed self serves the law of God. Remember the design of God's law for the Christian. It is to discover sin, it is to show it and to show it for what it is. As you examine yourself according to God's law, you will find sin. I promise you, you will find sin. But when you do, don't despair. Instead, go to Christ with it. When you find it, don't try to cover it up. Don't try to ignore it. Don't try to lie about it. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to excuse it. Bring it to God for deliverance in Jesus Christ. Ask him to deliver to deliver you from it, pardoning it for your pardoning you for your guilt and mortifying that sin. And as you go about your Christian life, know this, that it is your regenerate self that yields obedience to God's law. And it is your remaining corruption, right? Your sinful part that serves the law of sin. And it's precisely, precisely at that point, the point at which you find resistance to the law of God and you find rebellion to God, that is the very thing which you must flee to God for deliverance from. For it is those things which are that body of death that, you are, that Paul cries out to be delivered from. So the law of God then examines you and it shows you where your sins are. Knowing where those sins are, you know of what you must seek pardon and deliverance and mortification. So then, has 
what is good become death to us? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing, producing death in us through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, it's terrifying and humbling and crushing to us to know the depth of our sin, to know, Lord, that we carry it about ourselves in our own bodies, that every faculty of us, every part, every nook and cranny is tainted by sin. Yet, Lord, we take comfort that you, nonetheless, have redeemed us. You have made us your own. Oh, God, you tolerate us with great patience. We pray, Father, you would deliver us from our sins, pardon our sins, mortify our sins, increase in us the desire to obey your way, and decrease in us, O oh God, the desire for sin. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.